Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting that focuses on the best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive team and organization. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. My name is Karen Gunning, and I'm a professor and associate dean at the University of Utah, as well as a clinical pharmacist in our family medicine residency. And this is Caring for Transgender People, Insights and Points of Controversy in Medication Therapy. Joining me today is my co-presenter, Cheyenne Fraser, Assistant Professor at Washington State University and Clinical Pharmacist at the Spokane Washington VA. And to start out, I'd like to go over some of the learning objectives that Cheyenne and I have put together for this presentation. We really want to be able to provide you with scenarios that allow you to practice terms related to gender identity. The next thing is to really identify challenges and solutions for transgender people when they need to navigate the healthcare system. Moving on, I'll address the benefits and limitations of resources for common clinical questions when pharmacists are involved in transgender care. And then finally, we'll be working through some patient cases to identify clinical concerns and controversies in comprehensive medication management for transgender people. Right now, I'll turn over the discussion to Dr. Frazier to give her session. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here presenting for ASHP today. So I'd like to start with going over some basic terminology related to the care of gender diverse patients. So we'll start off with discussing sex and gender, which I think used to be terms that were used interchangeably, but they do have distinct definitions that I hope you'll be able to understand and feel comfortable using after this session. So let's start with definition of gender identity. So this is someone's internal sense of being a man, a woman, or both, maybe at different times in their life or different days of the week, or they could have a different gender besides man or woman. Next is sex assigned at birth. So sex is classification at birth based on external anatomy. So this could be male, female, or some people are born with genitalia that's not entirely male or female, and these people are intersex. And the estimates of the number of people who are intersex vary widely, but the estimates are generally between 0.01% to 1% of the population. And so I think, you know, nowadays we hear about a lot of people having gender reveal parties for people who are pregnant. And really that's inappropriate terminology because you're not revealing the baby's gender, you're really revealing their sex. So those should really be called sex reveal parties. Next is gender expression. And this describes the way you express your gender outwardly to the world. So this could involve a lot of different things. It could include the length of your hair, how you style your hair, if you choose to wear makeup and how you use that makeup, the style of dress that you wear, all of these things are part of someone's gender expression. And last is sexual orientation. So sexual orientation is completely different than gender identity. So sexual orientation has to do with whom someone is attracted to. So romantically, sexually, emotionally, who their heart desires. And people of any gender identity can have any sexual orientation. So transgender is an umbrella term that really describes a lot of diverse gender identities. The transgender community can be divided into those who have binary identities and non-binary identities. So people who are transgender with binary identifies identify as one of the kind of historical genders of either man or woman. So someone who is assigned the sex male at birth and has a gender identity of a woman could be described as a male to female transgender person a trans woman, or they could simply be described as a woman. 
So people who are assigned the sex female at birth and have the gender identity of a woman, sex of female, gender identity of a woman, those people are cisgender women. But when we talk about cisgender women, we don't always say cisgender woman. We often just say woman. So similarly with trans women, we don't always need to call them trans women. We can simply call them a woman. For people who are assigned the sex female at birth and have the gender identity of a man, these people could be described as female to male transgender, a man or a trans man. And then the other branch of this tree are people with non-binary gender identities. So this includes anyone who has a gender identity besides man or woman. Some examples of non-binary gender identities include people who are androgynous, gender diverse, gender queer, gender fluid, which means their gender may change on a day-to-day -day basis, a monthly basis throughout their life. Their gender is more fluid. Also bi-gender into spirit, which is a term used in the indigenous community. Next, I'd like to talk about some strategies that you can use to create a gender affirming environment. And I think by implementing these practices, you can really help reduce some barriers for your patients. So one practice that has really helped me is to reflect on my own biases and subconscious assumptions that I make about gender and sexuality. So we all know that we develop implicit biases based on our upbringing, the culture we're around, the media that we're exposed to. So I listed here some potential assumptions which I have held at some point in my life. So the first one is people with long hair are women. And while we all probably may know some men in our lives who have long hair, I think this is still a pretty commonly held assumption and it's likely that you may see a stranger somewhere who has long hair or their expression seems to have some characteristics that you associate with femininity even though you don't know them if you're talking about them to someone you may use female pronouns like she when describing them but really again gender identity is someone's internal sense of who they are so without them sharing that with you you can't be certain of what their gender identity is so just thinking about that when you talk about people using gender neutral pronouns unless you know their gender identity. Next is people with deep voices are men. And I think this can become problematic or comes up more when you're interacting with people over the phone without any visual cues to see them. It's easier to misgender people when you're just hearing their voice. And this becomes, I think, especially important because for trans women who choose to take estrogen for feminization, while estrogen does have many feminizing effects, it doesn't actually heighten or increase the pitch of their voice. And so there may be trans women who still have a deeper pitched voice. There's also cisgender women who have a deeper pitched voice. So just trying to not make assumptions and not use gendered language when speaking to people with deeper voices or any pitched voice over the phone. And next, or lastly, is manicures and pedicures are only for women. So again, thinking about are there any social activities that you really relegate that only one gender should be doing these or commonly do these? And just kind of, again, just as you're going through, just thinking about and starting to notice maybe some assumptions that you've held that you didn't realize before. So moving on from that, how can you change your communication to be more inclusive? So first is to avoid gendered terms. So things like Mr. or Mrs. or Ma'am or Sir, these terms are fine to use if you know for certain someone's gender identity. But if you don't know, it's best to avoid using gendered terms. Another good strategy is to ask all patients their preferred name. And this is something that I do in my clinic. So when I call patients into my clinic, I call them, well, when I used to have in-person clinic before COVID, I would call them into my clinic room by going and saying the patient with last name, whatever their last name was, bring them back into my clinic room, verify their date of birth. And then for new patients, I would ask them to share what first name they like to use. And this was really helpful, not only for my gender diverse patients, but also for patients who went by a nickname or their middle name. 
So I found it's been a good way to address patients the way they want to be addressed and build deeper rapport. Next is to ask patients for gender and pronoun information. I think this gives a signal that you want to address them correctly and gives them the opportunity to share this information with you. Another strategy is to practice using new pronouns. So many people in society use masculine or feminine pronouns like he, him, his, or she, her, hers. Another pronoun option for individuals is they, them. That can be a singular gender neutral pronoun, but there's also new pronouns that people may learn about and feel that those fit their gender identity best. And an example of this is Z, Zier, Ziers. And while this may be like any new vocabulary, any new word you learn, it may be a little clunky at first when you're integrating this into your speech, but one thing that can help is to just start practicing using these. If you have a friend, colleague, or patient who shares with you that this is their pronoun, to start using it when you're at home, doing dishes, doing something, just start to think in your head or say out loud some sentences using your friend, patient, colleague's pronouns. So, Z is a patient of mine. I'm going to have to look at your chart tomorrow to start to get used to using that new word in your vocabulary. Another thing that I think is a good practice is to review your written communication forms, the intake forms in your clinic or your institution, and check that they're inclusive. So there are some examples of really good inclusive forms. So if you notice some um, barriers or difficulties with yours. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Benway Health Clinic out of Boston has some great examples online, and Kaiser Permanente also has some great practices for inclusive forms. Some things that they do is they have a separate box for sex and gender, so someone can put their sex assigned at birth, and then in a separate box, add what their gender identity is. Also, having options of other if someone has a gender identity besides what you thought of in the checkbox list that you create. And then last is to provide opportunities for patients to update information. So a patient's pronoun preference or their pronoun that they use may change as they go through their transition. They may not feel comfortable using the gender, using the pronoun that aligns with their firm gender when they're early in their transition. But once they feel that they look more a certain way, they may change the pronoun that they use. So listening for cues, similarly with what names patients use when they say things like, oh, my chart's under this name, or if you notice a big discrepancy between a patient's legal name and the name they go by, seeing if there's anything you can do to help or any records that you need to update for them. So something that people may not have a lot of practice with is asking for someone's pronoun and their preferred name. So I wanted to go through some examples so you have verbiage ready to ask patients these questions. And I think that the more you ask, the more comfortable you become asking, and the more our patients hear these questions, the more they expect them and they're ready to answer them. So one practice that I use is to introduce myself with my pronouns and then ask the patient to introduce themselves to me. So an example of this is, my name is Dr. Frazier. I use the pronouns she, her, hers. I'm your clinical pharmacist and I look forward to getting to know you. Would you tell me about yourself? And that really leaves it open for the patient to share whatever information they feel comfortable with me about their identity. Another way you can just ask patients what name and pronoun they use. I think sometimes people try to beat around the bush, but Often if you're direct, that's another great way to ask someone their pronoun and name preference. So what name and pronouns do you use? It can be that simple. Even with the best of intentions, we all will still make mistakes. I still make mistakes. It's something that happens, we're all human. There are some best practices of what to do if you do make a mistake related to someone's gender when talking with them. To misgender, means to refer to someone intentionally or unintentionally as a gender other than the one with which that person identifies. So if you notice your mistake right away, quickly apologize, correct your mistake, and move the conversation forward. An example would be, his prescription is ready, I'm sorry, their prescription is ready. If you realize later, address it briefly with an apology and then move on. So an example of this would be, 
I'm sorry I used the wrong pronoun the last time you picked up your prescriptions. I'll be more careful next time. What has been pointed out to be important when managing mistakes and apologizing is not to dwell on it, to make it the focus of the conversation, to explain why you made the mistake, why it's hard for you to get their pronoun right. These all can be invalidating to the individual and kind of shifts the focus for them needing to comfort you. So best practice is to recognize your mistake, apologize briefly, and move forward. One thing that we are all trying to work on and is sometimes a limitation for us is working within the restrictions of our electronic health record. So I think we can all advocate for if we see things that need to be changed in our institution's electronic health record, elevate that and make sure that there is an awareness of it and help our institutions and our EHRs improve and make those changes. While we're working on that, I think we need to find innovative, consistent solutions that work within the current limitations of our system. So one example of this would be to have pop-up alerts or flags that alert you of someone's gender identity or their preferred name. Other options are having specific verbiage in notes. I think that can be useful. At the beginning of every note I write, I write what my patient's preferred name is. This helps me with my cisgender patients and my gender diverse patients to know what name they prefer to be addressed by. And any other provider who sees that patient sees my notes and knows a patient's preferred name. Another option, maybe specifically more for community pharmacy or anyone you know, using any type of paper record or providing any dispensing for a patient, would be to attach some notes to bags to reduce misnaming and misgendering. So a quick way to have a patient note, maybe with their preferred name and their pronoun to help whoever is at that front line address that patient correctly. Using visible symbols of support can be very powerful in creating a gender-affirming environment and increasing patients' comfortability in seeking care at your institution. So one thing that can be easy is wearing pronoun pins. I know of a lot of colleges of pharmacy who have done fundraisers selling pronoun pins. So that can be an opportunity. And so a pronoun pin is just a small pin that you can wear that states what your pronouns are. So I could have one that said she, her, hers. And then people who saw it would want to know how to address me correctly with my pronoun. And then also, you know, it's kind of a symbol that you're interested in addressing people. You're a little bit savvy when it comes to gender diverse care. Another option is to include pronouns in your email signature line. So next to your name, have what pronouns you use. That again, lets people be sure they're addressing you correctly. And I think is a signal that you know a little about gender diverse healthcare. You also can post transgender health-focused brochures and information in your waiting room or in your clinic office. I think that's, again, another symbol that can be very affirming to patients that they belong there and you want to take care of them. You can, as an individual or as an organization, participate in community outreach and LGBTQ awareness days. I think another, not necessarily a visible symbol of support, but another great way to educate yourself is to follow gender diverse people or gender diverse causes on social media can help educate you without putting the burden on an individual, a friend, patient, or colleague to educate you about current events or changes in the gender diverse world. Also providing access to all gender restrooms or posting clear signage that patients are welcome to use the restroom that aligns with their gender identity. And last, posting an inclusive non-discrimination policy and also be sure that your institution's policy specifically protects sexual orientation and gender identity and expression. And if you notice that that's lacking, advocate for inclusion of that. So I wanna say this is not an exhaustive list. I think there's a lot of opportunity to get creative and identify ways that you can be a gender-affirming provider. Identify any barriers in your practice that your patients express to you or that you identify as gaps and work to correct them. This is something that I saw recently in Washington State. It's called the Q Card Project. And it's basically just a little card that can be at a pharmacy counter or any type of check-in window and allows the patient to share information about themselves 
and kind of write about a specific question that they might have related to their gender identity. And for some people, it may be difficult to verbalize this in the moment. So having maybe a written way to pass this along may be beneficial for some patients. So what we're going to move into talking about now is some of the limitations and approaches to gender affirming hormone therapy. And I think you'll see after we begin to get into the information available that this is an emerging area that there are a lot of opportunities to contribute to the care of our patients. To start out, people often will ask, how do I gain more information about the treatment of transgender and non-binary patients. And really there's three core pieces of information that provide a good foundation for you in your learning about gender-affirming hormone therapy. And those are the UCSF guidelines for primary and gender-affirming care, the Endocrine Society guidelines on treatment of gender dysphoric or gender incongruent persons, and then the WPATH standards of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender non-conforming people. And the WPATH guidelines are quite old at this point. I think they're going to be revised relatively soon, but the UCSF and Endocrine Society guidelines are a little bit more contemporary. All of these are not exactly the same. They are well done consensus guidelines, but there's relatively little what we would normally consider high quality evidence-based medicine in the field of transgender care and gender affirming hormone therapy. So many of the clinic specific protocols or standards of care that you may see will probably reference these three core guidelines. So as you know, with all the other areas that we deal with in ambulatory care and pharmacotherapy, when there are gaps in evidence, something else tends to fill the gap. And because of that, there are a ton of different clinic-specific protocols and standards of care. There are some, as Cheyenne referenced, the Fenway Clinic, a very well-established clinic in Boston. There is the TransLine, which is a conglomeration of a variety of clinics providing transgender care. They are very high quality, thoughtful documents with a hybrid of expert consensus and the evidence that is available. But I will warn you, there is a lot out there that is not high quality. And one of the things that many people who provide care to this patient population may see is that there is a lot of information on sources on the internet like Reddit. And if you've ever looked at Reddit, it may be a reputable source of information if you're seeking information about how to fix your car, but it is probably not a great source of medical information. And then there are many single creator, single clinician clinic guidelines that exist both on the internet and on Reddit. So I think it's important for you as a clinician, of course, we don't trust everything we read on the internet, but there is a place for this information for you. And that is to really help you understand what your patients are seeing and what your patients are hearing and reading and learning about in the communities in which they get their information. And I have found that oftentimes, if I am asked a question about a very specific use of a medication and I can't figure out where it's coming from, Dr. Google will often help me understand where that patient may be getting their information. The other part that I think is really important as you think about the care of transgender and non-binary patients is there has been significant issues in access for in access to medical care in our country for these patients for a long time. And because of that lack of access, there really has been an increase in potential safety concerns with patients as they seek help on the internet, as they seek do-it-yourself hormone therapy that really has pushed us forward into trying to improve access in the traditional medical system. And I was delighted to see that access is improving often through our Planned Parenthood clinics. So Planned Parenthood clinics in a variety of states are now providing gender-affirming hormone therapy and if you look in the literature about health professionals, education, and trying to improve education about gender affirming hormone therapy, there is really a push for primary care medical residents to begin providing this type of education. 
still local and regional access gaps continue. And I will say that as we begin to provide gender affirming hormone therapy and care of transgender people at the University of Utah, we see a large number of patients, particularly during COVID, seeking care who are coming from states where there are less ability to access this type of care. There have been safety concerns about do-it-yourself hormone therapy, and there also are significant safety concerns with self-performed surgeries as patients seek gender-affirming care. The other part that I can't not emphasize is that in your community, there may be care for receiving hormones, but what all patients need, not just patients that are gender-affirming or that are transgender, patients are seeking care. They're seeking the same care for their diabetes, their hypertension, their other medical conditions that every other patient needs. And so if you can champion primary care integrated gender affirming hormone therapy, if that's possible in your institution, it would really serve a significant need. How do you begin to take this information from guidelines and integrate it with what the goal of your patients is? And we do this all the time. This is how we are taught as clinical pharmacists. But I think it's even more important when we're dealing with or helping patients who are transgender. It's very important for you to listen to your patients' goals for care. Make no assumptions about what their wishes may be. A patient who identifies as female may want gender-affirming hormone therapy may want a little bit of gender-affirming hormone therapy, or may be completely uninterested in receiving hormones. So just because a patient is transgender does not mean that they require or have to be or want to be on gender-affirming hormone therapy. I think that's one of the first things that is very important. Listen to the patients. On the other side of that, we know that as hard as we try with drug therapy, we can't always guarantee the outcomes of what that drug therapy will do. So we need to really assist our patients in identifying realistic medication, maybe also meditation, but medication-related goals. So we need to ensure that their expectations are aligned with what the medication can do. When we think about gender-affirming care, not just gender-affirming hormone therapy, we also need to think about that care can involve medications, but it also can involve other supportive care, including things like voice therapy, cosmetic services, plastic surgery, or fertility services. And if you are providing care to patients who are transgender or non-binary, it would be a great idea to identify potentially inclusive sources of these other parts of care in order to be able to refer your patients for the care that they are requesting. So I thought, because oftentimes, Pharmacists will ask me questions. I'm sure they ask Cheyenne questions as well about, I just don't know anything about this. I didn't learn this in pharmacy school. I'm going to cover some of the basics of gender affirming hormone therapy, and then I'll sprinkle in some of the associated controversies that we have seen in the use of gender affirming hormone therapy. First of all, what happens when someone seeks to initiate hormone therapy? What is the process that is done in the initial assessment when a patient seeks care? They need to have documentation of gender dysphoria. So they need to have a diagnosis and they need to have a thorough discussion with the provider that is performing this assessment to really ensure that the patient's concerns, the patient's wishes are noted. Because there are risks with therapy, there is often informed consent that is done. This is not necessarily done all the time, although the WPATH guidelines would suggest that it is best practice. The other thing that I think is very important is looking at doing an assessment of the whole person. And so doing screening lab tests, looking at are there other healthcare needs that need to be addressed in the context of also providing gender affirming hormone therapy. Mental capacity to estimate does the patient understand that potentially some of the effects of medication may be irreversible? So is the patient able to make that decision for themselves? Finally, is initiation of therapy consistent with the patient's goals as we talked about before? Maybe through this discussion, the patient really 
would like to access surgical services or plastics or voice therapy, but really doesn't have a set of goals that would align with receiving hormones. The use of a referral or approval letter from a mental health professional is still continued in some areas, but some clinics don't utilize that as a must have. So when we're talking about transmasculine therapy, so this would be for a patient seeking to identify as a man, the medication that we use is testosterone, as you might have guessed. And the goals of the therapy, the use of testosterone, are to develop male sexual, secondary sexual characteristics, and at the same time to minimize female secondary sex characteristics. In terms of looking at labs, we have a testosterone level that we really want to use for safety and an estradiol level that we want to use for efficacy. And certainly you may hear providers talk about testosterone in terms of efficacy, but it's very, very hard to say, if you're at X level of testosterone, then that should be great. Because really what we're talking about is individual patient-centered goals and decisions. But we wanna make sure that we're ensuring the safest possible drug therapy for our patients. So when we look at what can testosterone do, what masculinizing effects can it have? They include things like deepening the voice, reducing the size of the breast, increased libido, body fat redistribution, increased muscle, and changes in facial and body hair growth. One very important thing to realize is that testosterone will often cause a cessation of the menses, but this cessation of menses does not ensure that that patient can't become pregnant. And so a very important discussion with patients regarding that just because you may not have your menses does not mean that there is not a possibility you can become pregnant. I love this chart because it can really help us set expectations for our patients in terms of when they might expect certain changes to occur. And I know, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to teach a patient how to inject testosterone for the first time. Most of the time we teach patients how to inject insulin and they hate us and they don't want to do it. This is the most joyful injection teaching I have ever done. But oftentimes there's a disconnect between the time that the patient expects to have beginning masculinizing effects and the actual time frame of effect that the drug will take. There's a few things that may start as early as one month, but to really get the maximum effect, it can take years to achieve what would be termed a maximum effect from the medication. So in terms of testosterone dosing, you know, certainly test both testosterone and estrogen have been affected by shortages. So oftentimes we're kind of go back and forth between the cypionate or ananthate salts of testosterone. We start typically at 50 milligrams weekly, and then there's a bumper dose of 200 milligrams every two weeks. One of the most important things I will tell you functionally for your patients is please ensure that they have one mil syringes. It is really hard for the non-pharmacist or non-pharmacy technician to measure out a self-injection of a very small volume in a three mil syringe. So, it's been challenging to get one mil syringes, but really work hard to get those for your patients. Other forms of testosterone beyond injection are certainly reasonable to use. The gel, the transdermal, those are all fine to use. What I have found in my practice is that they're just often very expensive. And so when there can be insurance limitations period over coverage of any kind of testosterone, when we start getting into some of the non-injection dosage forms, like the gel and the patches, they can just become very expensive for our patients. Now, one of the things you may have seen on the previous slide is that testosterone for gender-affirming hormone therapy can be given either subcutaneously or IM. And this is one of the most common phone calls I get from pharmacies after our providers have prescribed testosterone. So because of self-administration of IM testosterone is somewhat challenging, there has actually been a study and a follow-up study looking at, is it safe and efficacious to use subcutaneous testosterone instead of IM? So it's the same dosing, a one mil syringe, a 25 gauge, five eighths inch needle to inject because you need the shorter needle for the subcutaneous injection. 
and giving this in either the abdomen or the thighs. The first study that was done looked at comparing IM versus subcutaneous and found that serum concentrations of testosterone, total estradiol, masculinization, and local reactions were similar for the patients getting IM versus the patients getting subcutaneous. And the biggest difference was that every patient in this study preferred subcutaneous, as you would if you had to give an injection to yourself. So there were very few mild local reactions that were pretty much transient and not long-lasting. The second study that was done looked at is it stable dosing over time if you administer this through subcutaneous administration? And in fact, that was shown to be true, that if you administered it for a longer period of time, you did have a consistent dosing. In terms of testosterone adverse effects, they're very similar to what we would be concerned about in a cisgender male. So polycythemia, coronary artery disease, androgenic alopecia, which may or may not be desired, hypertension, elevated LFTs, and Something that is important to think about in a transgender male is that they may have vaginal dryness and vaginal atrophy. And so being aware of these and asking patients about their personal symptoms may allow you to provide them with helpful suggestions to help improve those. With polycythemia, this is probably the most common adverse effects we see. It's due to higher doses and so often responds to a decrease in dose. Laboratory monitoring for each of these is extensive. And as you can see, the emphasis is put on not only ensuring a safe testosterone level, but also ensuring that the hemoglobin and hematocrit are not excessively elevated. In terms of timing of laboratory monitoring, you really need to ensure that you have an appropriate lab timed lab draw to be able to interpret the lab result appropriately. So for testosterone injections, the most common way is to draw a level midway between the injections. For transdermal testosterone, drawing at least two hours after application. Additional monitoring, certainly we want to ask our patients how they are doing in terms of do they feel like they're achieving goals that they have set for themselves for masculinizing effects. We want to make sure that we're always assessing for the risk of sexually transmitted infections. And then finally, remembering that testosterone is not contraceptive, ensuring that we're appropriately doing pregnancy tests if pregnancy is a possibility. And that leads me to the next topic or controversy that you may hear about. So contraception in patients receiving transmasculine therapy, because testosterone does not provide a contraceptive effect. The key question is understanding that if there are sexual practices that confer a risk of pregnancy, if they have a partner that produces sperm, then there could be a risk of pregnancy. And assessment of the desirability of pregnancy is a very important question for these patients. So educating patients, talking about them, about options, and the options really depend on what the patient's wishes are. With estrogen-containing options, there's actually a real lack of any information in this area. There's potential concerns about adding estrogen back into a patient who is generally desiring to not have estrogen on board anymore. Again, patient individuality, patient may have a preference. Both copper and levonorgestrel IUDs can be an option, but many patients may not be interested in the process of IUD insertion. Depo-medroxyprogesterone or implants can be reasonable. In general, what's seen if patients have amenorrhea from the testosterone, they are unlikely to have bleeding issues that we may expect from these progestin-only methods. Progestin-only pills may actually have a little bit more of those issues. So talking with patients, identifying their risk of pregnancy and their desire or lack of desire for pregnancy, and then going through what options are available for patients. We're going to move now to talk about transfeminine therapy or gender affirming hormone therapy for transgender women. In terms of the treatment of transgender women or hormone therapy for transgender women, there's a little bit more diversity in medications used. So the medications that we're gonna talk about are estradiol, and antiandrogens, primarily spironolactone. The goals of therapy, similarly to talking about transgender men, 
are to develop female secondary sex characteristics and to minimize any male secondary sex characteristics that the patient is particularly wanting. In terms of target levels, there's actually much controversy about target levels of estradiol. Some clinics don't measure them at all. Other clinics hypermeasure them. But really, it's a safety measure because of the potential risks of estradiol. For testosterone, again, we're thinking more about suppression of testosterone being an efficacy measure. In terms of hormone feminizing effects, these are the things we could expect to see as a patient begins estrogen-based therapy. So again, patients may want some of these, they may not want some of these, but that's the purpose of having a strong discussion with your patient about their wishes. And in terms of time frame, again, much like with masculinizing effects, these things take time. And so having this available, using this to set realistic expectations for your patient can be very helpful for them and can help avoid frustration. In terms of estradiol, there are a variety of estradiol forms that are used. And so oftentimes the first, and often because it's the least expensive, is the use of oral estradiol. Starting at a dose of two milligrams daily, and maxing out at a total dose of eight milligrams daily is what is typically seen. With oral, there tends to be less fluctuation in levels when compared to transdermal or injectable formulations. And you often see it divided twice daily, which is not something we see with menopausal hormone therapy, but is something that has been extensively supported in guidelines for gender-affirming hormone therapy. So you might say, and this is probably the second most common question that I get from pharmacies, what the heck with sublingual estradiol? Because as far as I know, estradiol is not a sublingual tablet. So many of the guidelines say to use estradiol tablets sublingually to allow the tablet to dissolve under the tongue to help avoid first-pass metabolism at an attempt to avoid potentially some of the clotting concerns with estrogen. But these tablets are really not formulated for sublingual dosing. It's not like nitroglycerin. So it's very unclear if how much of the dose is actually absorbed sublingually. And it's probably a combination of both sublingual and oral dosing. There are some studies that have begun to look at this, and there's actually some products that are being designed to actually be sublingual, so specifically formulated. And certainly there is no harm in taking oral tablets sublingually. But this presumption of safety by avoiding first-pass metabolism may not actually be realized. We do need more studies with formulations actually designed for this. With estradiol transdermal dosing, certainly reasonable, definitely avoids that first pass effect. The problem is once you get more than one patch, which is often required, it can be exceptionally expensive for patients. And so that is often the limitation I see in the use of estradiol um, transdermal patches, but certainly a reasonable option for patients. And then finally, and I think this is very regional and very clinic specific, some clinics never use injectable estradiol, other clinics use a ton of it. And so estradiol, there are two salt forms. The primary form that is used is estradiol valerate, and these are the doses for estradiol valerate. There's conflicting dose recommendations across guidelines. We tend to start low and go slow because we have seen if we try to use dose conversion tables between tablets and injection, we actually can get some exceptionally high estrogen levels. You can use estradiol cypionate, but it is different dosing that I have not included on this. And it is important to know that because there are frequent shortages of both valerate and cypionate. So sometimes you have to go back and forth, but you do have to dose adjust. There are not the same studies to support subcutaneous dosing like there is with testosterone, although magically some guidelines state that you can use either route, but that has not been extensively studied. So feminizing adverse effects, many of us deal with patients on menopausal therapy or contraceptive estrogens, and we know that these side effects can occur. And so many of these are related to estrogen, gynecomastia and hyperkalemia, obviously related to spironolactone. Now a controversy, many of us, you know, have been taught to be very sensitive to the risk of venous thromboembolism with estrogen. And we need to really approach this from a risk benefit standpoint for patients on gender affirming hormone therapy. Yes, 
thrombosis risk is increased in a dose-dependent fashion. We want to avoid supraphysiologic levels. We want to avoid ethinylestradiol. And that's one of the reasons that you'll never see ethinylestradiol used in this situation is that in early studies of gender-affirming hormone therapy, it had the highest risk of clot. But if you're working in a hospital, periprocedurally, there's actually no evidence to stop estrogen therapy before or after a surgical procedure. If they're on a higher end of dose, you might consider moderating that dose, but definitely provide appropriate prophylaxis as needed for the procedure. But stopping estrogen when someone comes into the hospital or when they're having a procedure, that should not be done. And there's some good studies to support that it's not needed. If a patient is in a hypercoagulable state, anticoagulate them, but consider continuing their estrogen. Remembering that there's really not alternatives to this for the use of a gender-affirming hormone therapy in a transgender patient. And so we want to be as sensitive to the patient wishes as possible and use our other tools to help reduce risk. For acute VTE, treating them appropriately with anticoagulation, considering longer-term anticoagulation, and continuing their estrogen transdermally if possible for those theoretical benefits, but continuing it. Let's talk for a second about spironolactone. Spironolactone is a androgen blocker. And so this is in a quest to provide an alternative mechanism besides the administration of estrogen to block testosterone. And as you know, if you're dealing with patients with acne, spironolactone works very slowly. And so this can often be frustrating for patients. So setting appropriate expectations is important. Obviously, monitoring potassium level, the frequency of which depends on other patient characteristics, their renal function, their other medications. And certainly, often what patients are seeking this for is to enhance breast development. And there may be very large variations in the ability of this medication to enhance breast development. A patient does not have to be on spironolactone, but it's just a choice that they may choose. You will hear about other androgen blockers. And so I take this from Cheyenne, the great Vical debate. Those of us who take care of a lot of transgender patients have a lot of discussions about this. Many patients request this as an alternative to spironolactone because there is a perception, Reddit-induced, that it induces better breast development. There is actually no evidence that this is the case, but it is hot and hot, hotter on Reddit. So bicalutamide, you may pull from your memory banks, is an androgen receptor blocker that it's actually approved for the treatment of prostate cancer. And there's one small study looking at it as a puberty blocker in male to female adolescents for short term. But in adults, the benefits and the risks are really unknown. And the UCSF guidelines term that the risks are greater than the benefits. And with the lack of information, that's definitely the case. The risk and why you don't see it used all that much for prostate cancer is there is a risk of hepatic failure and death. And it's very hard to predict who might have this adverse effect. So if it's used, and we do not use it in our center, but if it is something that is being used, you have to monitor LFTs and you have to let patients know that there is this potential risk of hepatic failure and death. So I will say there are a number, and I struggled with Cheyenne's help to try and figure out how much of these controversies that I could get into this discussion. But other things that you may have questions about are things like evidence-based lab monitoring. So I alluded to, there's a whole discussion about what labs we need to monitor, how frequently should we monitor them, what should we use as the goal, or what should we use as a safety bumper for lab monitoring? Very much a controversy. Should we be using progesterone in transfeminine therapy? There are certainly people out there that are extreme advocates for progesterone. I encourage you to find that paper. It is quite humorous. But there's also people that don't find value in the use of progesterone, and it may impart risk. The use of GnRH analogs as androgen blockers, some clinics use these in every patient, other clinics never use them. So again, very regional or local changes in what therapy is used. The dosing of hormones post-gender affirming surgery, this is actually something I'm particularly interested in. After a patient has a hysterectomy or an oophorectomy 
or an orchiectomy. What should we do in terms of modifying their hormone therapy after the removal of the ovaries or the testes that are really the prime production sources of endogenous hormones? And we don't have much information about that. Supportive fertility in patients on transmasculine therapy and understanding patient wishes. And then the safety and efficacy of compounded non-oral hormones. Very, very important, but very little information. And there's tons more. So if you have an inquiring mind and there's a need in your community to provide gender-affirming hormone therapy, I would totally encourage you to begin to try and offer those services, but also to try to answer some of these clinical questions. So in summary, we wanted to impart some of these basic tools. Number one, seek information, but realize that the evidence base is limited. It's in a junior phase, and there are a lot of very divergent opinions out there. I have found really going back to pharmacology and pharmacokinetics is very helpful to me in answering questions from both providers and patients and using what I would call your pharmacologic and pharmacokinetic common sense. Transgender and non-binary patients have many of the same health problems as all of our other patients, and they need you. They need you to help them with their diabetes, their hypertension, and also to answer questions about gender-affirming hormone therapy. Be kind, have a goal of being understanding and being receptive to the fact that what you say now may change as we have more evidence. And that finally, transgender non-binary patients need hormone care as they wish, but they also need primary care. And so providing the inclusive environment that Cheyenne talked about is an important first step, even if there's not support for providing gender-affirming hormone therapy in your clinic. So in terms of key takeaways, take a continuous quality improvement approach to this. As you look at your personal and clinic and hospital environments, what do they say to our transgender non-binary patients? Recognize the limitations in our available evidence and educate yourself on what is available, including the areas of controversy. And finally, treat every patient as an individual and listen to their goals and questions, as well as information they find from sources you may not typically think are valuable, and then integrate what you know already about pharmacology, kinetics, and therapeutics. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashb.org backslash DEI. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 Major Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Vasiliga from ASHB Official and thanks for listening in.